is in the book of Acts. We continue um, our exposition in Acts in chapter 7. We begin reading in verse 30. This is towards the, the middle of Stephen's speech, his defense before the Sanhedrin. And in verse 30, we begin reading chapter 7, verse 30. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him, Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt." This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idols, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands." Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God Rephem, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build 
me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? This is from Isaiah 66. Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which both which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Acts chapter 7, as we hope to consider this this portion before us where we see the church's first martyr. Stephen had just been chosen as a new church officer to assist the apostles in the daily ministrations. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we read that he was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. And although for a little while it seems that given the council of Gamaliel, the Sadducees had left the apostles alone, Stephen's activities, however, were so evident and so marked that it called the attention of those from the synagogue, we read of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and them of Cilicia and of Asia to dispute with Stephen. And as he spoke, he did so with such wisdom and with the help of the Spirit that they were not able to resist him. And so they instigated men who planned to accuse him of Blasphemy against Moses and God. And with these accusations, they were able to stir up the people and, and get the Sadducees to join and the elders and scribes and to arrest him. And then at the mock trial, they accused him with false witnesses that Stephen had blasphemed against the temple and the law of God. So with this, they had their case against him. He was in a mock trial with these false accusations, in essence, four counts, blasphemies against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And in chapter 7, the very first verse, the high priest addresses Stephen and says, Are these things so? And he's given an opportunity 
for his defense. And it's basically almost the totality of chapter 7. And we began reading, we saw that what he begins to do is tell their own story. He tells their own history. He starts with Abraham when God revealed himself in a glorious way. He says the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham in verse 2. And then from Abraham to the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, and how God used Joseph to protect the whole family in Egypt. And then how out of Egypt came forth Moses. And then Moses, because he was raised by Pharaoh when he was 40, he himself supposed God would use him to deliver his people. But to his surprise, he was rejected. And he went to Midian. And then in chapter 30 is where we began reading, where 40 years later, he heard of God. God then appeared to him in a glorious way. So right now you see what Stephen's doing. He's showing God appeared to our people in Abraham. And then later God appeared to Moses, to our people. Through Abraham, that's when our people began. And through Moses... He was being told that he would be the one to deliver our people. And, and so he tells a story of how Moses went back to Egypt and brought them forth with a mighty hand. And, but then he, he, his speech is marked by this reality. There's a theme that is being built, especially surrounding Moses. That Moses was rejected, even though he was approved. He was approved of God, but rejected of the people. And one critical point is verse 35. He says, this Moses whom they refused. And so he's pointing back to that first refusal back in Egypt saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. So this is a summary of of his defense. And the question is, um, why? Does he give them a history lesson? That's what his defense is. It is history. Why is that important? Well, we we already looked at one very important point that I'll just go by real briefly. Because this helps us understand how truly Christianity is based upon history. It is not a philosophical system. It is not a man's idea put into a book and people follow it and it becomes popular. No, it is, it is revealed. God revealed himself through the history of his people. But a principle here is that through this people, it is a history that touched the whole world. And we, we see that it's based on promises given to a people. This people had to live and they had to have families and they had to move. There were wars, there were battles, there were marches, they were pilgrims, they were shepherds, they were migrants and soldiers and settlers. They were exiles, bondmen at times and freedmen at others. They had judges, they had priests, they had kings, they had prophets. They lived at times like nomads and at other times in walled cities. They conquered, but they were also conquered. And in the midst of all this historic reality, God was revealing His Word all throughout. While they were in Egypt, God revealed His Word. While they were in Babylon, God revealed His Word. While they were in Israel, God revealed His Word. And there were prophets that were told, go to other countries and reveal My Word. 
And so it was going forth to the whole world. And, and it was meant to be so. And this is important because a lot of people say, well, Christianity is a Western religion. They, they even erase the reality that it began in the Middle East. But because it did extend far west, it's often called a Western religion. And it is not true. It is not a Western religion. It is not even just a Middle Eastern religion. It is a worldwide religion. Because when God appeared to, Moses, to, to Abraham, the first one he appeared to as he began his people, remember in Genesis 28, 14, he said, In thee and in thy seed, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Yes, God was setting forth a people with Abraham, but it wasn't meant to just be the truth for that people. They were to be, as it were, missionaries to the whole world. And then we read passages like we read this morning in Isaiah 54, 3. Thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. Isaiah 55, 5. Thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run to thee because of the Lord thy God. And it is so much true that Paul is able to say in Romans three twenty three. he asks the question, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And to be God of the Jews and God of the Gentiles, it means the whole entire world. God is a God of the whole earth. And, and this is what's being set forth in, in this historical account to the Jewish people, to the Jewish leaders that's why he uses history. It's one reason. There's more. A second reason is he is, throughout his defense, um, answering the very false accusations against him. There were those four counts. He's blasphemed against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And you notice what he does. He, when he speaks of Moses, look at the honor he bestows upon Moses. It was, it was the people of the day that rejected him and mocked him of being a judge and a ruler. And then he says the same God sent him to be a ruler and a deliverer. Not only a judge and a leader, but one who would deliver them. A little savior of the people. When I say Savior, I mean like with a little S, because he would be a type of Christ, the Savior with a capital S. And, and this is what he's doing. Far from blaspheming Moses, he is honoring Moses and honoring the God of glory who called Moses. And then the God who, who, who appeared to Abraham. He's exalting God. He's exalting Moses in the right way. And then when he speaks of the temple, he's, he's correcting their view of the temple. Because in truth, when they saw the temple more important than Jesus, because in essence this is what they, they made a choice between the temple and Jesus. Because they said that Jesus spoke against the temple, so let's kill Jesus. Literally they were saying the temple is better than Jesus. As soon as they did that, they were worshiping things made with hands and rejecting the Savior who was approved of God. And that is why, at the very, towards the end, he brings Isaiah 66, where God said, when speaking about building the house for him, Solomon would build it, but God wanted to make it very clear that this is not really my house. It's not like I need a house. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? 
See, he was using scripture to say, you all are worshiping those blocks and stones that God made with his hands. But you are blaspheming God because you are making the temple more important than Jesus. This is all in between the lines, in essence, what he is doing. He's answering the false accusations and he's also revealing to them that they are running the danger. And some of them are doing it at that very moment of committing the very same error that those fathers of old did. You notice how he recurs. He goes back to this theme. They, they in verse 25... For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. What did they do? They rejected Moses at 40 years of age. And then Moses is chosen of God when he says, yes, God chose them, even though they rejected him, God chose them. So there's really two themes here. One is the theme of rejection. The other is the theme of acceptance. And he is saying, our forefathers rejected what God had approved. And then this Moses leads them into the wilderness and is being used of God to teach them about the law and about worship. And then verse 39, we we read again, to whom our fathers would not obey. He's saying, y'all are accusing me of blaspheming Moses. Our fathers did that. And if you do not repent and believe in Jesus, you're going to be also one who is at the same time rejecting Moses too. Remember how Jesus said, if you, if you believed in Moses, you, you would believe in me. So even people who thought they followed Moses, if they rejected Jesus, they were rejecting Moses. And he points out even where that rejecting is to be found. So going back to verse 39, what did they do? But thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. And verse 40 is how they went and asked Aaron to build the God Um, the gods that would be those calves, those golden calves. And in verse 38, no, 37, he says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you. Of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. He was revealing to them the reality that Moses was the type of Christ. Moses was rejected, but God approved him. And he said, there will be a prophet like unto me. Listen to him. The key is, don't reject him like you all have been rejecting me. And we've been going through this cycle in the wilderness... You reject me, but God shows He approves me. Some people die. Then you reject me again, God shows He approves me. More people die. This has been the story for 40 years. There will be a prophet like unto me. Don't reject Him. Listen to Him. And He is saying this to people who have rejected the prophet like unto Moses. And so you see what what He's doing through this history is bringing the reality to their hearts, praying that it would weigh in their hearts and would make them see their sin. Our fathers rejected Moses, 
but God approved him. We have rejected Jesus. Could it be that God approved him? And beloved, this is exactly the point in the little bits and pieces. If you go back and you see Peter speaking in that first arrest, and then Peter speaking for the apostles in the second arrest, the simple explanation he says is, you all have crucified the Lord of glory. The Father has raised him up. In the first arrest, he said, he's the stone that you builders rejected. But it was found to be the cornerstone. See the theme? You rejected, God approved. You rejected, God approved. You all are about to stone me to death and reject me. But God has approved me. This is a theme all throughout this message. And it's meant, of course, to pierce the heart of those who have that wicked intent so that they would acknowledge their own sins. And in the text, we don't find people with pricked hearts. We see them with hearts cut. And this is different. They are angry and we see what they do. But as we, we've alluded to it time and again, in this blessed reality found in verse 58, that as they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And this is the first time we hear of the man who later is known as Apostle Paul. And in, in heaven, we may be able to ask very specifically, what were the effects of this sermon in your heart, Paul? And when we're going to continue the sermon, look at more things that Paul would have known and Paul would have heard. But he was hearing there that he was rejecting one whom God has accepted. So this is why he brings history. It is meant to pierce the heart. It is meant to help them understand that they're, they're repeating history, the errors of, of history. And, and now let's bring this to, to our own hearts, to our own um, existence. If, if you are here without believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see how we've been doing. We've been finding people arresting the apostles because they rejected Jesus. They rejected Peter. They rejected the apostles. They're rejecting Stephen now. See, someone who does not believe in Jesus is someone who rejects Jesus. And there's no middle ground. There's no other place to be than one who would be with Christ and his apostles or one who would be with the rejectors of Christ and his apostles. And we are being called, all of us, of course, to be on the side of, of history, the right side of history, where we accept Moses because God accepted him, where we accept Jesus because Jesus was accepted of God. It is wise and right for all, every heart here, to accept the Lord Jesus Christ because you'll be accepting the one whom God has accepted. So these are some of the reasons why um, he goes back to history. And that's our first point, is his defense. But let us see now Stephen's Christ-likeness. To some degree, we're, we're still looking at his defense um, because he shows Christ-likeness um, all throughout, not just before he dies, but as he lives. Well, first of all, he was Christ-like in his holiness. Um, from the very beginning, remember, when he is um, taken to the council, we read in chapter 6, verse 15, that his face um, was as it had been the face of an angel. And this must be the reflection of the holiness of his heart. You could think, could that mean that 
the angelic feature spoke of his serenity, of his peace? Could it be just speaking of a calm? I do believe it has to do mainly not just with calm and, and, and a humility, but of holiness and of faith. And he was holy throughout this sermon. Even though he, yes, he gets to the point of great boldness. This is what we're going to see in just a second. But, he, but that wasn't sinning. He was being like a prophet, telling what these men had to hear. But then in his holiness, he dies in such a humble way where he prays for his murders. So he was Christ-like in his holiness. Secondly, he was Christ-like in his boldness. See, humility never means a lack of boldness. The, the truly humble person knows when to be bold when it is necessary. And at the end of this sermon, it's, it's, this boldness was required. This boldness was necessary. He, he arose to a Christ-like bold accusation of those who stood before him. Remember how Jesus, he was very humble. He was very patient. He went to banquets that Pharisees invited him to. He answered Pharisees um, politely to begin with and strongly as it went and towards the end of his ministry is where he called them out literally calling them hypocrites and a brood of vipers so Jesus got to the point where the Pharisees had to hear of their sin and evil and and Stephen saw it was time they heard of their betrayal and murder so it's what he accuses them of then he was also Christ-like in his sacrificial heart Because by now, he knew that there was a very strong possibility that they would condemn him and that it would be the death penalty, that it would be death by stoning. This was all happening so fast. It was was clear that it was going to go into that passion-like way. Um, And this became his last words. Remember, it it was a sermon. And his very last breath, it was a prayer. And he was here ready to die while preaching the gospel. He was, he was literally serving, and as he served, he was killed. He was willing to die, bearing the word um, in his heart. That is very Christ-like. And then he was Christ-like in his words. And that, that is the most crucial place where we see, we see him so much like Jesus. This man Stephen and the Lord Jesus, they share two phrases um, while th- that they both spoke close to their death. Jesus' parting words, as we find recorded in Luke 23, verse 46, are those memorable words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And here we find Stephen commending his soul to the Lord too. In verse um, 59, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But then Stephen had his last words of all which were, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said that, he said something similar to what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they do. So the Christ-likeness, of course, that we see here, are not, not just that the prayers were the same, but especially in this prayer, in commending the Spirit, it is a prayer of faith. Both Jesus understood and believed that his soul would be safe in the hands of the Father, even though it was persecuted very brutally here upon this earth. And, and it shows even a theology there of the body and the soul. Um, as much as the body is important, beloved, and we, we need to understand this, it's, it's hard for us to grasp this because our body is what we see and it's what we tend to take care of, but our soul is what needs to be commended to the Lord. And you see, he's... His body is being stoned. It's going to be buried. It gets to a point where he has no more control for the body. He will no more try to preserve it. But he pleads for his soul to be conserved, for his soul to be received. And that's what we need to learn, that we have a soul and that that soul has to be cared for. This is why we we need to even sacrificially understand and put it into our our lives and our routines, that we need to feed our soul, we need to read the Bible, we need to spend time in prayer because our soul is more important than this body. This body is temporal. The soul is eternal. This body, when it resurrects, it will be a spiritual body. But right now, it it is a body that will perish. And it gets to a point when you're about to die that the soul becomes what you take care of and you forget about the body. He wasn't concerned about the stones. We don't hear him say one word about the stones that are coming at his body. But he pleads for his soul. So, so there, of course, there's a Christ-likeness because Jesus did too. His body was being treated so brutally and Christ now had no more concerns for his body, but he said, Lord, I commend to thee my spirit. But where we see a Christ-likeness that's, that's very heart-like is where we see both Jesus praying for his persecutors as we see Stephen praying for his persecutors. And, and think of what this means. Here's, here's a man who is seeing stones being hurled at him. And while those stones are coming from those people, he has prayers going towards heaven for those people. See, they send their stones... He sends his prayers. They they have the stone, as it were, as intercessors for their anger. They cannot grab him with their hands, so they throw stones to show their hatred. And he is an intercessor for their souls, sending his prayers to heaven so that God would have pity on them. And he was Christ-like, not just because he was imitating Jesus, but he was also with the power of Jesus to do this. We, we have to understand this. And this is where we go to our third and, and our last point, the, Stephen's God. You know, everything that we've been hearing is about God. The very, the very moment that the high priest rose up and said, Are these things so? So this man has blasphemed God and Moses, the law and the temple. What do you have to say for yourself, Stephen? He doesn't say, Well, this is what I believe. This is what I have said. No. He starts in verse, um, in verse 2. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. And that starts the whole history. 
It's just like going to creation and we go to Genesis 1 and, and it begins that God created the heavens and the earth. And, and we, we look at this world and it's really all about God because God created it. We look at light and we remember God said, let there be light and there was light. And so he's going to tell the story in his defense and he begins with God. This is a sermon about God. It is where he is martyred. And he's martyred because he tells them about God. The God who called Abraham, the God who brought forth a people, who called Moses, who appeared from the bush and told Moses to deliver the people from from Egypt. The people leave Egypt because of God's mighty hand. And then when they're in the wilderness, God's giving the law. He's teaching them how to worship him. It's all about God. And then when we read of from Moses, it goes to Joshua and then to David and then to Solomon. What does Solomon do? He builds a temple. And when the temple is spoken of, we read again Isaiah 66 and verse 49. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. These are the words of God. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? And this is, this is what's emphatic because this sermon is all about God. And then verse 51, he sees the people listening to him. And, and it's like they're already gnashing their teeth probably. They're already showing their disapproval. So he just tells them, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. So you see there how he brings the culmination. They rejected Moses. God approved him. They rejected him in the wilderness. God approved them. You have rejected Jesus. God has approved them. See, you're doing just like our fathers, and you've resisted God. So there's quite a big problem if you're hearing a sermon about God and you don't like it. But that's why many people don't come to church. They know they're going to hear about God. And they resist the Holy Spirit of God. But this is all about God. He's revealing Himself. We see Him in the message. We see Him sustaining Stephen so that he would preach even even to the point of death. But where we see the greatest miracle of all is when we see God in the hearts of men and women turning us into new creatures. See, these very people who who were looking at the apostles and rejecting them, they had been seeing or hearing about astonishing miracles. Think of everything that went with Christ. It was there in the record. The resurrections, the deliverances, the walking on water, the turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people. All those stories were going all over. And now they had this recent message from from these apostles. And they they had heard of the gift of tongues that they were able to speak. um, And and that was still going through all of them. And they, they knew these men, and especially the fishermen who seemed to be the most simple among them. And how they spoke with so eloquence, such eloquence and powerfully. Those were things that they were seeing. They had seen... Very big numbers, 3,000 people after that first sermon. And then before too long, 2,000 more people. And people were being won by the gospel every day. 
Then they had the healings of people that were countless and people delivered from demons. Everything was happening. It's like Jesus left, but everything continues like when Jesus was here. But here's the greatest miracle of all. This is where the martyrdom of Stephen becomes a very powerful witness. This is the greatest miracle of all. It is the life of God in the heart of man. And I want to repeat this reality um, of his death. So when they heard these accusations that he made, he, he told them very clearly, you, you have done exactly. It's been, history is harmonious. And you're supposed to not repeat history of the errors that went before. But our people rejected Moses. And, and our people rejected the prophets of old. Look at 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. The very prophets witnessed about Christ, of whom ye have been now betrayers and murderers, whom we have received, who have received. Now he's speaking of seeing God, and you see what the people do. They, they are so anti-God that they crowd out with a loud voice and stop their ears and ran upon Him with one accord. It's, it's almost the idea that um, what you have to say about God they were like looking like wild beasts looking at him. Verse 55 says he was full of the Spirit. He looked up steadfastly to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. You, you know that this is very emphatic that Jesus was not sitting at the right hand of God but standing, which means that from his resting position of ruling, he showed a motivation of receiving, as it were, one who's about to come into heaven. And then he said that. He said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. See, as, as he's speaking about what he sees of God, he spoke about God and now he's speaking of seeing God. And you see what the people do. They, they are so anti-God that they crowd out with a loud voice and stop their ears and ran upon him with one accord. It's, it's almost the idea that... Um, what you have to say about God, we don't want to hear. Of course, in their hearts, they're thinking it's all not true. You're blaspheming. You're now inventing this. And they don't, it's like they don't want it to affect them. So they speak loud and they stop their ears because they don't want that message to come from him to them. That's when they hurl him out. The witnesses put their clothes at the young man's feet and the stones begin to be hurled at Stephen. And this is, of course, where Stephen is most um, a witness. This is where we see the greatest miracle of all. Granted, of course, he knows he can't run. It's an execution. If he runs, he'll, he'll kill in the direction that he runs. They'll get him and continue stoning him. But he could have continued praying for his soul and for his loved ones. But he says, lay not this sin to their charge. Think of a sermon that was heard and was followed. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. 
He taught us to pray for those who curse us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who persecute us. And this is what he's doing. And you see, when we think of all those miracles, it's amazing how we can find reasons for them. Healings can be accomplished with medicine. Devils can resolve to leave a body. Prison doors can be open. It's not impossible to open prison doors. Numbers can be produced. But a heart that prays in love when he is stoned in hatred, there's only one explanation. This is God in that heart. That is Christ working actively in that soul. For not only did he see God before he died, but the same Jesus who arose before his death received him into heaven the moment his soul departed. And while he was on earth, he was being like Jesus. You really do have here the the Trinity. He already spoke of them resisting the Holy Spirit. He is preaching this sermon in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is on earth helping Stephen, indwelling Stephen, strengthening Stephen. Remember, Jesus said, don't be worried when you're persecuted. You'll be given what to say. And the Holy Spirit is giving to Stephen what to say. And he sees heaven open and he sees um, the glory of God. He says it. And then Christ standing at the right of the Father. There's a Father, there's a Son. And the Holy Spirit is in him. Not beside him, but in him. Because he's the one who prays that God would not lay that sin against them. And as much as many could say, well, but he heard this sermon, Saul, and it took a few chapters before we see him converted. True. But the prayer was answered. Because Paul was saved. And this iniquity was not laid upon the charge of the very one who was taking care of the clothes. He was one of the witnesses. He most likely would have been one who gave the false accusation. He would have been one who was himself blaspheming the temple because he thought the temple was greater than Jesus. But he became a man. We know Saul became Paul. And he became Christ-like and ready to die and praying for his persecutors and saying even such things as that he could rather be condemned so that his fellow brethren Jews could believe if that were ever possible. This prayer was answered. Beloved, let that be a blessed application to your heart that God answers prayers. Even if it takes a while, but he answers. This this is a testimony in scripture that is majestic because Saul becomes the greatest missionary and minister the world has ever known. 
You never run across a history book or a missions book or, or a theological book that tries to say that men maybe like Calvin, maybe Augustine, maybe, maybe someone like Luther would have been better. No. There's none. God used Paul. And he was saved as a result of a martyr's prayer. The church's first martyr. Let us seek the Lord that we would have the same humility, boldness, Christ-likeness, love, and mercy. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Lord, for Thy Word. We thank Thee for this sermon were the last words of Stephen. We thank Thee for how much of it was recorded, if not all of it. We thank Thee, Lord, also for the last breath that was recorded of Stephen. Lord, we pray that Thou would give us this Christ-like heart. Lord, that we would, would rise above the fickleness of this earth and what it has to offer. As we saw, Lord, the, that which is not bread, and the wine of this world, or the waters of the earth, or, or the milk that the world has to offer, and help us, Lord, to receive the invitation of Christ to come to the waters. And as a result, we may be bold as Stephen, and Christ-like like him, and humble at the same time. Forgive us, Lord, our sins. Forgive us our fears. Help us, Lord, to grow in our fear of God that we would not fear men. We see this so clearly in this man, Lord. He did not fear these men who hated him. He loved them. He traded their hatred for mercy. And we thank Thee, Lord, that in the records of Scripture we know at least of one man who was saved in answer to this prayer. And we have reason to believe from the very content of the prayer as well as later thou did deal with him in these pages of Scripture. Thank, we thank thee, Lord. And we pray that thou would bless each and every one of us as we seek to live our Christian life looking unto thee. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.